Uh, actually, you just happened to have your uh, computer open there. Our first set of slides is actually just called stretching. So how many people here have stretched? Every day. Depends. I didn't stretch on the weekend. I did nothing on the weekend. I, I ate bacon and eggs and roast beef and I had a I had a relaxing weekend for a change. Usually do what's that? <laughs> All right. So um, a lot of you have taken stretching exercises. I know there's folks here that are trainers. I know there's folks here that took health and fitness promotion. And one of the distinct differences between us and you is that uh, who are you allowed to give exercises to if you are from the health and fitness promotion and or a trainer? Yeah, but who are your clients? Uh-huh. And they are what in their way of health? They shouldn't be. You can't give exercise prescription to someone who's ill. Did you know that? You, if you remember the term, if you've taken the training, is is uh, you're thought to be healthy, correct? You don't know if someone is or is not. But one of the distinct differences between someone who does regular training and, and uh, someone with us, we are able to give exercise prescription to someone who has got problems. Fundamentally, and I know what happens in the, in the industry, you should not be giving exercise prescription to someone who is fundamentally ill because you, you haven't got the background information in terms of how to deal with someone who has certain issues, musculoskeletal issues, and so forth. You can look after someone after clearance of a physician or a specialist or a physiotherapist or whomever, but um, that's why you do a PAR-Q, right? You do a PAR-Q? Do you do a PAR-Q? Does LAQ Fitness do a PAR-Q? I'm not sure. I never did one. Right. PAR-Q is... Um, is a very small questionnaire where uh, if you're in the fitness industry, you give it to your patient or your sorry, your customer, and if they answer yes to any of the questions, that they can't continue into an exercise program until they go and see their family doctor because the answer yes may denote that they have some kind of underlying pathology. So that's one of the big things with us in massage is I can work with someone who has had something wrong with them, had a surgical procedure and so forth, um, that is in a relatively acute stage and can, can prescribe and set up a resistance and sort of stretching or whatever exercise program for them. So that's one of the things that's quite unique, which is nice for us, is that you know we can you can do both. Actually, you could work with individuals who have some issues and, and at the same time see them when they're perfectly healthy afterwards. So when we look at stretching, then what is it we give stretching for? The first thing is obviously mobility, and we have to look at a couple of definitions of mobility and what denotes sort of someone who is considered to be mobile or not. So the first definition is mobility can be defined as the ability of structures or segments of the body to move or be allowed or move to allow range of motion for functional activities. In other words, either the patient can move the limb through normal range of motion or someone can move their limb through motion as well. Okay? And it's normal. In other words, um, when we look at a particular joint in the body, we have um, considered normal ranges of motion for every movable joint in the body, and we sort of match it up to that that sort of uh, amount of degrees of movement and determine whether or not it's normal. Remember, though, even though 
there are books and numbers and degrees and so forth, it's still whatever that patient's normal range of motion is. The other term for or definition for mobility is the ability of an individual to initiate, control, or sustain active movements of the body to perform simple to complex motor skills. This is known as functional mobility. Now, you guys, I understand, have not really taken anything called impairments or anything yet, correct? In your theory class? So one of the things that you have to do when you're dealing with a patient who comes to you is you have to get a sense of if they have any impairments. Ultimately, or fundamentally, an impairment is something functionally a person can no longer do, and it can be something as simple as I can't brush my hair to I can't perform my task at work, whatever that task might be at work, lifting a box or, or turning a wheel or whatever, and it can also be something that you can't do at home. So I always use the example of brushing hair. So you know, brushing hair requires external rotation and abduction of the shoulder, and maybe uh, Mrs. Jones has got some kind of pathology in her shoulder and she can't brush her hair anymore, right? So she has lost functional mobility. She is now unable to do particular functional tasks within, with, within her, and I think you guys have taken this term before, ADLs, activities of daily living, right? So one of the things that we are going to learn as you move through here is not only do we look at someone from a pathological point of view to say, oh, you've got this, this condition in a joint and I, my expectation is you're going to have particular limitations in range of motion and weakness and so forth, we also have to take that uh, a pathological determinant and see how it affects their day-to-day -day life. Uh, one thing I talk about next semester is um, when a patient comes in and says they've got Parkinson's. Mrs. Jones is in high Parkinson's, right? We learn what Parkinson's is. We learn all its signs and symptoms. We know what goes on physiologically in the body, in, in the disease process. But you with Parkinson's and you with Parkinson's and you with Parkinson's will all deal with it It'll, or it will all affect you differently within your day-to-day -day lives, whatever it is you may do. So you always have to consider that when you're looking at it. So that's what we mean by functional mobility. In relation to functional range of motion, which is the first one, the patient requires a number of things to have functional range of motion. So some things have, we have to think about, because uh, we look at it backwards. As therapist, someone comes in, Mrs. Jones comes in, she can't move her arm. All right? We say, hmm, that doesn't seem very normal to me. Okay, I wonder what's causing that abnormal movement that I'm not expecting to see. I'm expecting to see normal movement. So, in relation to functional range of motion, the patient requires joint integrity, which would mean what? Structurally together. Yeah, is it structurally okay in its relationship? And flexibility. Now, when we consider flexibility, it's not just what you might think. We need to think about the extensibility of soft tissues that cross or surround a joint, such as muscles, or a joint muscle area, such as tendons, fascia, the joint capsule, ligaments, nerves, blood vessels, and skin. All of these things have to be normal themselves in order for that joint to move through a particular normal, smooth range of motion. So when Mrs. Jones comes in and she can't move her shoulder, you have to start considering in sort of the first steps is, I wonder what's causing that limitation. Is there a problem in the joint itself? Is there a problem with the tendons across that joint? Is there problems with the nerves in there? And on and on and on, the joint capsule and so forth. And in the coming semesters, this is what you're going to learn. Various things such as capsular patterns. So if a capsule has damage to it, 
each joint in the human body has a particular loss of range of motion in a very specific way due to the capsule. So for example, capsular tightness or capsular patterning in the shoulder is abduction and external rotation. That's what the patient loses. So you start to see Mrs. Jones says, I can't abduct and I can't externally rotate. What would you start thinking about? The capsule. Something might be wrong with the capsule. When I had my shoulder surgery, I was unable to do that. My capsule was all seized up because I was in a sling for six weeks. So I lost fundamentally more than anything else, external rotation and abduction. So the therapist had to put a lot of exercise and stress on my interior joint capsule in order to get my range back. My loss of range wasn't necessarily related to my joint relationships because that had been fixed in surgery. And it wasn't related to muscle weakness, although I was weak muscular-wise because I had been in, um, in a static position for six weeks. But fundamentally, before all that stuff could happen, all the strength training and the stretching, the therapist had to get my joint capsule loose so I could start getting a range of motion to actually perform the exercises that that individual, the therapist, wanted me to do in the first place. I'm, I'm planting little seeds here. I'm not going to ask you questions on this, but it's just the thought pattern I want you to start thinking about when we go through this. So, range of motion needed for performance of functional activities does not necessarily quite require full or normal range of motion. What do you think that means? Ultimately, what I'm trying to say there is you don't necessarily need full range of motion in the joint to perform a functional activity. How is that possible? Could be. What else? Yeah, yeah, right. Anything else? Maybe to perform certain functional tasks, you don't require full range of motion. Right? So walking stairs, for example. To walk up a flight of stairs, do you need full hip and knee flexion? You don't, right? If this is a step, okay, is that full range of motion for the hip and knee? Not even close, right? Knee to the chest is the hip, heel to the bum is the knee. So I don't need full range of motion in order to perform functional tasks. So it's one thing you need to think about. So as an example, if uh, Mr. Smith has an artificial knee put in, artificial knees never allow that knee to go back to full range of motion ever again. What we strive for and work for with a prosthetic knee is 90 degrees of flexion. If we can get to 110, we're, we're doing the Snoopy dance. And that's about as far as you're going to get with an artificial knee. Okay? So we know that 90 deg degrees of flexion means that that patient's limitations in normal functional stuff, they'll, they, won't be un they won't be limited. They'll be able to do pretty much whatever they want. Ride a bike, walk stairs, drive a car, all the things that are required of them. Will they ever have normal range again? No, they will not. But So this is an example of where... I may just want to get someone to arrange to be functionally able, right? It's like, it's like shoulders. You know, um, if you think of how much truly do you do above your shoulders? Not a hell of a lot. It comes up occasionally, right? You know, cans on shelves and reaching up to get a bowl out of the cupboard or whatever it may be. But ultimately, we don't do a lot of functional work above the head in day-to-day -day life. So... Again, if an individual is limited to some amount of flexion they can do just to here, and that's as far as they can get, they should be able to functionally still 
do day-to-day stuff within the sort of arena of their normal day-to-day functional activities. So that's mobility. Now what is hypomobility? Hypomobility it can be caused by adaptive shortening of soft tissues. So we have to think about what that means. If to achieve big range of the motion, normal range of the motion, we said that soft tissues surrounding or crossing a joint need to be relatively extensible. In other words, they need to be able to stretch. So let's go back to me again. You have surgery on your shoulder, I'm stuck in a sling 24 hours a day, cannot use that shoulder. What's going to happen to all the soft tissue in and around that shoulder? Shorten and tighten up. What's the saying? Cliche, if you don't use it, you... Right. Same thing happens with structures in the human body. The moment you are immobilized, you get architectural changes in tissues, which results in shortening. And when we say the term shortening, a lot of you will go right to a muscle, which is not incorrect. But there's other tissues as well that shorten to some degree. So what can cause that? Prolonged immobilization, like me. Right? My shoulder, everything shortened up. My shoulder didn't work properly. Sedentary lifestyle. If I sit on my duff all day and don't do anything, right, am I going to have shortened structures? Sure I am. Postural malalignment and muscle imbalances. So if, again, you know, anterior head carriage, if I walk around all day like this, what's going to happen to my neck? Everything back here is what? It's going to shorten back here. This is going to get long. This is all going to shorten because of poor posture for very, very long periods of time. Impaired muscle performance or weakness. So if I have a weakness in a agonist and it can't function well, maybe I've had a, a minor stroke of some kind, what do you think happens with the antagonist? Uh, no, it won't. So this, uh, if I use my arm for an example, there's a direct relationship between my bicep and my tricep, right? So under normal neurological circumstances, there's, an, there's a balance between the two of them, which allows my arm to be able to straighten out, correct? Okay, so if, um, if I end up with um, getting stuck in here, then I am going to be shortened and stuck here. But what if I'm weak? tricep is going to pull the lay, the arm away because I've lost that balanced interaction between the agonist and the antagonist. Right? Because there has to be certain things functionally moving between one and the other through the nervous system. Tissue trauma resulting in inflammation and pain. Uh, so you end up with, you know, sort of some trauma, burn or significant uh, cut or something like that can cause it. And then congenital or acquired deformities. So we... Uh, you know, something inside mom, you know, your CP, cerebral palsy, right? Someone gets stuck. You've probably seen lots of these folks around, right? Um, they get into what's called flexion contractures. The one foot on the same side is into plantar flexion. You get you get shoulder tightened in, elbow flexion, internal um, um, supination in hand is like this. You've probably seen these folks, right? They walk like this. It's a normal neurological dysfunction due to the CP that results in shortening. Right? You also see it in post-stroke. 
So uh, paralysis starts first, so the individual has what's called flaccid paralysis, so they can't use the limb, it just kind of hangs out there. And then the etiology is over time, it goes into flexion contracture. So we do some really neat things with that. If I ever see you in long-term care, I'll show you some really cool reflexes that actually open up flexion contractures. So we have mobility, we have hypomobility or loss of it. We then have flexibility. Now flexibility is the ability to move a single joint or a series of joints smoothly and easily through an unrestricted pain-free range of motion, whatever that joint is. Muscle length in conjunction with joint integrity and the extensibility of periarticular soft tissues determine flexibility. You may have heard this, hear this for the first time as muscle length. What do we mean by muscle length? How long is the muscle, right? So that must mean that in a normal functioning limb, whatever limb we want to talk about, the interrelationship of muscles across that limb all have to have a normal length to them in order for that joint to function properly, right? If I end up with a shortened length of a muscle, what does that do to the movement of the joint? Yeah, it will decrease your range of motion simply because it doesn't get to its normal extensible length. So a term you might hear at your OSCE in a very long, not, it may seem like the future future, but it's really not as far as all of you may think when you get to the CMTO, you may ask, they may talk about the length and strength of muscles. So when we look at the strength of muscles, that would be muscle testing, which we've somewhat talked about. If we're looking at the length of muscles, we're looking at the flexibility of muscle tissue, right? So we say that muscle length in conjunction with joint integrity and the extensibility of periarticular soft tissues determine flexibility. In other words, when you see a limb that may not be working as well as you think, or the range of motion is not as much as you would assume, there's a whole lot of stuff you need to think about that could be causing the lack of the range in that joint. It could be, what is the length of the muscles that crosses that joint? What's the flexibility of the soft tissues that surround that joint? And what is the relationship between the bones in that joint? Something's wrong. Now you're gonna learn how to do an assessment of this to dig deeper into the reason why a patient may come to you with lack of range of motion. I'm just getting you started to think about the fact that when someone can't move a joint, there's a lot of things that could be the problem or one of many things that is the problem that results in the patient's inability to move that joint through a normal range of motion. So then we can say that flexibility is related to the extensibility of the muscle tendon units that cross that joint based on their ability to relax or deform and yield to a stretch force. So when we look at a muscle, we have to realize that Everything has sort of a, a neutral position to it, every joint. So if we look, at the, <clears throat> we look at the elbow, completely straight is not a relaxed position for the joint, is it? It's slightly flexed, right? That's, the, that's kind of the position of, of what we would call the, the relaxed arm. We're going to learn in a couple of lectures why that needs to be that way, but understand that it is that way. So to be deformed, I need to be able to stretch it out right? So although this is my relaxed state, that is not the full range of motion for my elbow, is it? Ultimately, that's the full range of motion for my elbows, right? So because 
this is in a semi-shortened position, which is natural for it, it needs to be able to stretch out to provide that full range of motion to the joint. Okay? Next, proper arthrokinematics. We have not done arthrokinematics yet. Arthrokinematics are the, the movement or the relationship of movements between the two joints within the joint. Or the two, sorry, the two bones within the joint. So this is about gliding, sliding, and spinning in a relationship between those two bones in the joint. This is not something that you can voluntarily alter. This is something that, that um, arthrokinematically, uh, the two bones relate to each other and allow for movement. And of course, the last part is the ability of periarticular connective tissue to deform. So periarticular connective tissue could be the joint capsule or any of the other structures across that joint, okay? We have a couple of different types of dynamic flexibility. The first is dynamic, and that is also known as active mobility or active range of motion, which means that it's the degree to which an active muscle contraction moves a body segment through the available range of motion of a joint, and you guys, have all done this, correct? In lab. In other words, who's doing the work? The patient, right? You ask somebody to move a shoulder or an elbow or a knee or a hip, whatever it may be. You stand back and watch and get them to go um, through all the ranges of motion. How many joints have you guys done? Just a couple to kind of discuss that in lab? Like maybe the shoulder and the hip or something like that? What's that? And the abs in the back as well. Good. Okay. All right. So you get the idea that, you know, depending on whether a joint is multiaxial or uniaxial or biaxial, there could be a number of movements that occur that you need to measure or look at or, or a min more minimal amount of them, right? Fla fla passive flexibility is also known as passive mobility or passive range of motion. This is the degree to which a body segment can be passively moved through the available range of motion. Passive means they don't do it. You do it. Okay? So active, the patient moves a limb through its available range. And passive, you move the limb through the available range. When you do it for the patient, is there any muscle contraction? Have you talked about this in lab? Is there any muscle contraction if I move it? A couple of people here said no. What about this side of the room? On what? If I'm, if I, so if I have you do the same movement, so let's say shoulder flexion, and I, I stand in front of you and ask you to do it, and then I come over and I do it, is there any muscle contraction in the flexion when I do it? Okay. Okay. So, some good answers and a couple of good questions. First and foremost, there is no muscle contraction. Remember that. Put that in your back pocket. Remember it hard and hard and fast, especially for next semester. So, when I do it, there is no muscle contraction, right? So, when the patient does it. They have to contract the muscle, especially the muscle that is the prime mover for whatever movement you're asking the joint to do, correct? Everybody can follow that? So I want you to do shoulder flexion. I'm expecting the muscles that are involved in shoulder flexion, especially the prime movers, if they are strong enough and there's enough extensible 
sensibility to tissues surrounding that joint, I would suspect and expect that that, that would go right through normal range of motion, yes? Now, when I do it, <coughs> I take the contraction out, but the muscle still shortens. Why is that? Kind of, but ultimately, if if we said there's no contraction, would the muscle really shorten? Right, there's not. So how does it shorten? Short? No, no, stretching isn't shortening. But but how does it do that? <laughs> okay. What would happen if I took your biceps muscle and used a knife and cut off all three of its attachments and put it on the table? Would it be the same length as it is when I cut it off you, or would it be a different length? Why would it shorten? Well done. Exactly. When we look at, it's called the length tension relationship, we'll be talking about this in a couple of, in a couple of sets of slides from now, is that in order for muscle to, to produce the strongest tension that it can, the muscle has to be a little bit longer than its resting rate. Okay? Exactly 1.12 times its normal resting length. That has to do with the relationship between the actin and myosin in it. So it is uh, at 1.12, it gives the optimum relationship between the actin and myosin to produce the greatest amount of tension. In other words, make the muscle perform and produce the strongest contraction that it can. All right. So when we look at my arm, my biceps muscle, it is not flaccid. There is actually some tension in here. If I were to cut it off, it would shorten. Right, that would be its normal rate. So when I'm passively moving it, I will reach a point where right, it just shortens in on itself because of the microscopic architecture of the muscle itself. Do I reach a point where I can't shorten it any further? Let's forget about the joint because the joint could limit shortening of the muscle to some degree, correct? So could too its antagonist, couldn't it? All right. So if I'm trying to shorten biceps and, and triceps is a bit short, I'm I'm certainly not going to be able to do it, am I? Because I'm going to be putting a stretch on the antagonist. Please, everybody tell me if you understand that, because I will repeat it a couple times, because it's going to come in to play when we do PNF. If triceps is a bit tight, I am not going to be able to completely necessarily shorten biceps because triceps is tight passively, okay? Even actively would still be a bit of an issue, wouldn't it? <laughs> Sorry, maybe I shouldn't have said that. Everybody just went, whoa, what? Okay, so there's a relationship there. But I can reach a point where I can't shorten any longer. Because even, again, architecturally, the, the actin myosin molecules will bang up against the Z-discs and just can't shorten any longer. Okay? So there is an ultimate length and an ultimate shortening that can happen in a muscle. But what I'm after is that Passively, when I look at passive flexibility, it's when I do it. Passive flexibility is a prerequisite for, but does not ensure, dynamic flexibility. So you need it, but it doesn't ensure necessarily you're going to get full dynamic flexibility because you also have to think about what happens actively. Okay, so I talked about shortening. So we said that uh, we have hypomobility, we get chronic shortening or adaptive shortening. So if I keep it short long enough, it's going to stay short. 
One of the things that can do this is something called a contracture. Restricted motion can range from mild muscle shortening to irreversible contractures. So some of the examples I talked about earlier about uh, of muscle shortening, it can be relatively mild and um, can, be, can be reversed. So even, even though I spent three months getting rehab on my shoulder because I had all this shortening due to the fact I was in a swing, in three months I was able to bring the limb relatively back to complete normal range of motion. It was reversible. But if I was a young child and I had a, a horrible burn on my arm that would result in a contracture or a fundamental thick scar, what would that do to my range of motion? Limit it for ever, right? Because scar tissue doesn't, um, it's not irreversible. So we can work with it, which we do. <coughs> Excuse me, we work with it. We can stretch it to some degree. We can we can cause architectural change within that scar tissue, but ultimately you will never get to where the muscle tissue was because scar tissue is not muscle tissue. If you remember your first and second intention healing, it's you guys, right? Yeah. Um, that, you know, when we had those, um, that granulation tissue form and then we had connective tissue scar tissue form, it does not have the same properties as the tissue it initially was. Therefore, it gets stuck and it really limits range of motion. So that is considered a contracture. A contracture is defined as the adoptive shortening of the muscle tendon unit and other soft tissues that cross or surround a joint resulting in significant resistance to passive or active stretch. Okay? So ultimately, we can have, as I say, adoptive muscle shortening can be a contracture or a very extensive uh, trauma or scar to soft tissue can also be considered a contracture. So you have some that are reversible all the way to some that are not reversible at all. The next thing we need to think about when we're thinking of giving our patients um, stretching exercises is something called selective stretching. Ultimately, selective stretching is about determining um, under uh, the influence of a pathological condition whether it's appropriate or not to have a joint become more flexible. So anybody here got chronic shoulder dislocation? You do? Okay, so with you, would I want to stretch all the muscles out in that shoulder? Why wouldn't I? <laughs> there goes the arm, right? Cough and then your arm falls out, right? Okay, so that's an example of selective stretching. I would deliberately want adoptive shortening in that shoulder because of her problem that adoptive shortening would actually provide stability to that joint, right? There might be some muscle or structures around that shoulder I would want to stretch, but there would be other muscles and or structures I would not want to stretch. I would want it to remain shortened. An example is uh, post-stroke. Uh, someone who has lack of use of their hand, what they will do is allow a semi-contracture of a hand into a functional position. Okay, so they can't open and close their hands, but I'm going to let it contracture and shorten to this position. Why? What can I do with this hand? What can I do with this hand? I can't move it. I can't do anything with it. Is it, any, is it of any use to me at all? No. But is this? Yes. Right? I can go like this. Right? I can, I can grab a cup. Right? So this is another example of where I would deliberately want 
lack of stretching to allow that shortening to happen. This is called the functional position of the hand. So I might allow that to happen. Another example is someone who had, who's had a, uh, a spinal cord injury or significant paralysis and they end up in a wheelchair because they're a quad. I want all those core structures to seize right up because it'll pr help provide some core stability for that individual because they've lost all muscle control in order to be able to sit properly in a wheelchair. Right? So by allowing this to shorten up, it does provide minor at best, but it does provide some stability to the core in, in the presence of the pathological condition that they're in. So there are times where we stretch. So again, something to think about if, if you have a patient, if you're in here, you come in and see me, and you've got shoulder problems, right? Too often, therapists just mindfully go, oh, it's tight, I want to stretch it out. Right, but your head in the game to say, no, this is a chronic dislocating shoulder. I need, I need to keep some of the structures very tight, which will help in her stability of that joint. So please try to try to remember that when you're when you're thinking about it. Overstretching and hypermobility. Overstretching is a stretch well beyond the normal length of muscle and range of motion of a joint and the surrounding soft tissues, resulting in hypermobility. How many dancers and or gymnasts do we have in the house? Nobody? You? Which are you? Okay. So did you have to do some crazy stretching exercises to achieve some of the positions that they want you in that just under normal circumstances there's no way you could get to? Yeah, as much as possible, right? Okay. So in some instances, some sports, such as gymnastics, um, the patient may have to do excessive overstretching in order to achieve things that the sport and or art, whatever it may be, demands of them, right? It wouldn't be something I would give you in running, right? I wouldn't want you to be able to put your foot behind your head or something. It wouldn't, it wouldn't uh, promote well to a runner, but you might want it for dancing, right? So it does come into play when we think about functional needs of our patients, right? What does that patient do? What is required of them to get back to what they may normally do? So we may have to selectively stretch to keep something tight. We may have to overstretch for them to perform a particular sport or task that they have to do. So it's not always just what you might see in the gym, you know, touching your toes and, and you know, doing triceps and all sorts of things pre-exercise, which are vitally important, but there's other things to think about. So we're saying here that it may be necessary for those individuals whose sport requires extensive flexibility. So again, it's just something you need to think about when you have that interview component with your patient about what it is they do in their day-to-day -day life. All right, this is a real quick one, but well, let's talk about some of the interventions that are used out there to increase mobility and flexibility. We have stretching passive or assisted. So this is a sustained or intermittent external end range stretch force done by manual contact or mechanical device. So it could be me putting somebody through, right? Or it could be, uh, I think they use them in uh, martial arts, where you get in for, um, for uh, abduction, and you, they go in, they have this bar, and you pull it, and it makes your legs go into excessive abduction. You've not seen these before? No, they need it. That's how they get their high kicks. They need that flexibility so they can get that foot way up. Yeah, yeah, they literally go in it and they have a bar and they they pull the bar. And I mean, it's controlled. It's not, um, they have the ability to stretch to where they feel comfortable, but it literally abducts the legs into the splits. Mm -hmm. 
so it elongates the shortened muscle tendon unit by moving the joint past the available range of motion. Self-stretching. Any stretch that's carried out independently by a patient after instruction and supervision by the therapist, also known as flexibility exercises or active stretching. So we kind of do that with our patients, right? We give them exercises. Neuromuscular facilitation and inhibition techniques. We will be learning that in about the next half an hour. Uh, it shortens muscles reflexively prior to or during muscle elongation, also known as PNF stretching. When we do PNF stretching and we learn it, what we're doing is we're playing around with the nervous system. We're deliberately fooling the nervous system to cause reflexive relaxation, which promotes greater flexibility. Okay? Muscle energy techniques. We don't do this. Generally, is in the purview of uh, osteopathic medicine. And what it is, it's uh, they sort of they use the, the patient's uh, active movements uh, in a controlled direction against the practitioner's counterforce. Joint mobilizations and manipulations. <clears throat> it's an intervention that is specifically applied to joint structures to modify pain and treat joint impairments to increase range of motion. We do the first half. We do not do the second half. Joint mobilizations are a way where we're moving joints through. Joint manipulations, if the best way to put it, is the chiropractic crack. That is not in our scope of practice, but we can do everything up to except that point where we crack. So we are able to uh, perform those, those uh, modalities. Soft tissue mobilization and manipulation is the application of specific and progressive manual forces, sustained manual pressure, or slow, deep stroking. Who does that sound like? Massage therapy. Okay, that's us. All right? Through those kind of movements, we can increase range of motion. Neural tissue mobilization is another one, which is a very advanced technique. You might be interested in that when the time comes after you've graduated. Neural pathways are mobilized through selective procedures. In other words, what I do is there are specific body positions where I actually stretch the nerve. It's not very much fun. But sometimes you have to do it because there's an impingement on a peripheral nerve that's causing um, preferred pain patterns and weakness and that kind of stuff. And they loosen the tissue off to some degree and they literally put the, the limb in a position to actually stretch the nerve through. So when do we stretch? Well, we stretch when range of motion is limited because of soft, the soft tissues have lost their extensibility as a result of adhesions, contractures, scar tissue formation, which ends up in functional limitations or disabilities. So that's what we would give a stretching uh, regime. Restricted motion may lead to structural deformities that are otherwise preventable. Again, that don't use it, lose it thing. You do get adoptive shortening. If you stay in that adoptive shortening too long, in some cases, the bony structures fuse and you're never going to get that range or that movement back again. That's why we need to be careful that we move structures. Uh, there is muscle weakness and shortening of opposing tissue. It can be used as part of a total fitness program, um, ultimately designed to try to avoid musculoskeletal injuries. Okay, And it may be used prior to and after vigorous exercise to uh, minimize post-exercise muscle soreness. When don't we do it? If we have a bony block that limits motion. So uh, you guys haven't taken uh, N-seals yet, have you? So you're going to learn that you know when I, when I take a joint to an end range, I, I want to get a feel of what that resistance like is like at that end range. Uh, it could be normal uh, capsular because you know, you're know you putting a stretch on the capsule when you get that joint out too far. But it could be I get so far, boom, there's just this hard stop. 
something's wrong with the integrity of the two pieces of bone in the joint and there's a bony block. Am I going to force through that bony block? Not a great idea. Okay, we don't do it. Uh, there was a recent fracture and a bony union is incomplete. So we don't stretch someone who just broke a bone last week. Um, wouldn't be a good idea. There is evidence of acute inflammatory or infectious processes with heat and swelling or soft tissue healing that could be disrupted in the tight tissues and surrounding region. Someone has a relatively acute hematoma. Do we stretch that muscle? Nope. Right? There's too much damage and inflammation in that tissue. So we don't stretch that. There is sharp acute pain with joint movement or muscle elongation. A hematoma or other indication of tissue trauma is observed. Hypermobility already exists. Anybody here hypermobile? Anybody here do the backwards bend of the elbow? Yeah? Or the knee? Okay, that's hypermobility. Would I stretch that any further? I would think not. Uh, short and soft tissue provides necessary joint stability in lieu of normal structural stability or neuromuscular control, which I talked about earlier. And short and soft tissues enable a patient with paralysis or severe muscle weakness to perform specific functional skills, otherwise not possible such as the functional position of the shortened fingers in the hand. Okay. So, we have to think about what happens to tissues when we stretch them. What is going on? Well, we have two types of tissue that we work in that surround a joint. We have contractile tissues, which you know as what? Muscle. And we have non-contractile tissues. In other words, tissues that are just as important in terms of allowing normal range of motion in a joint, but they're non-contractile, which includes ligaments that cross that joint, the tendons of the muscles that cross that joint, the joint capsule itself, the surrounding fascia, whether that includes fascia of the skin or other tissues around, and uh, non-contractile tissues in muscle and skin, which we'll learn a little bit later. These tissues can develop adhesions and contractures that affect the flexibility of tissues crossing joints. The difference between stretching this tissue to muscle tissue, when I stretch muscle tissue, it is stretchable, it's extensible, and we can change its length. So through stretching modalities, I can take a shortened muscle and make it, strong, make it longer. Connective tissue is different. Connective tissue hasn't got the ability to stretch and stay because it's not a muscle. It's connective tissue. When I place a stretch on connective tissue, I am fundamentally changing it. Ultimately, I'm kind of tearing it apart, okay, to get it long. That's where we're going to spend a little bit of time here. We have to talk about something called the stress-strain curve. Now, the stress-strain curve is about what does it feel like when I place this stress on this non-contractile tissue. I have to know what happens when I stress it because if I stress contract connective tissue too far and it's not extensible, what's going to happen? Rip. Right. So I have to have a sense of what happens to it when I place tension on it. So I get a sense of how far can I go. Because if you don't go far enough, you won't make the change. But if you go too far, you'll tear it. So that's why we have to talk about it. Because you do have to be aggressive with connective tissue if you're going to affect change. But obviously not too much. Okay. So when we look at the stress-strain curve, we have a number of regions. 
So it's kind of like this. You'll see it in the book when you look at your book. It's kind of this, this slow kind of up in the graph and down again. The toe range is the beginning of the tension. So I place t a stretch on the connective tissue. The first thing that happens is I start to apply the stretch. I go into the toe region, which is there is there is deformation. In other words, the connective tissue does elongate to some degree. Okay, there's some elongation, but I haven't put a lot of tension on it. Okay, um, and if we remember dense connective tissue, the collagen fibers are it says it right there. Wavy, okay, all right. If I continue placing pull, any more increased pull on the connective tissue, I'm at the end of its range of motion, and now I'm into a stretch, okay? So before, I just had some deformation, some pull on it, but now I'm into a stretch. And what I've done is I've taken the wavy configuration of connective tissue and I have straightened it out, all right? So the collagen fibers lengthen and line up. When they do this, you actually get micro failure of the collagen fibers. They, they're starting to tear, right? Microscopically, but they're starting to tear. So some micro failure between the collagen fibers begins and some water may be displaced from the ground substance. What did I say about water and connective tissue? See, all the stuff comes back. Did I say an AMP about water and connective tissue? I remember proteoglycans, the little toothbrushes with the water molecules on it. And if I add water to connective tissue, what does it do? It becomes more movable and pliable, right? Okay. Uh, some micro failure stuff happens, we look at, may get some water, and there's complete recovery from this deformation. So I still haven't gone far enough. Yes, I'm pulling, I've, 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 there's no more waves. There are some minor micro tearing, but I still haven't affected change. So that when I let go and I take the tension off, that tissue is going to go back to its shortened state, right? So the next thing I have to do is apply even more pressure into the elastic limit. This is the point to which the tissue does not return to its original shape and size, and it is what's called the elastic limit of the tissue. These changes take a lot of practice, but if you really become cognizant of what's happening, you will feel a difference in resistance as you move through these steps. <clears throat> now, these steps, from, from most mild as we work our way through, the changes aren't this big, they're like that big, right? Right. So when you're pulling on that connective tissue, it's not a change of an inch. It's a change of less than a millimeter as you move through. All right. So as I leave the the um, if I leave the elastic range into the elastic limit, I'm going to feel a bit of a want to pull back now, right? I'm in the elastic range. I'm going to continue. And I'm going to apply even more and go into the plastic range. <clears throat> this range is beyond the, the elastic limit, extending to the point of rupture. All right? The tissue has permanent deformation when the stress is released. There is micro failure between the bonds of collagen fibers. We find heat. So ever noticed here when someone manually stretches you, it feels hot? Anybody ever notice that? 
It's a deliberate, okay physiological response. Uh, the fibers rupture and it results in increased length. Seems kind of what? But we want that rupture to happen. We need to have it happen, okay? We're tearing it apart a bit. The ultimate strength is the next range, which is the greatest load the tissue can uh, sustain. And what happens when you get here, if you've gone too far, all that resistance that you've been feeling as you pull through the stretch suddenly starts to weaken. It's almost like, ooh, it's not resisting me anymore. That is known as necking. If you maintain into that necking curve, guess what happens? The reason it's weak is because it can no longer withstand the stress anymore. It's, it's weakened. So if, if you're pulling and that resistance goes up and all of a sudden it starts to disappear, back off. Because now if you stay there, you're going to actually tear the tissue. <clears throat> so the greatest load the tissue can sustain, there's considerable weakening known as necking. And if you stay there, it's going to tear. If you continue through ultimate strength, which I really don't want you to, you'll actually go into failure and you will get a complete rupture and tear of the tissue. It'll just rip. This is what happens when we have torn ligaments and so forth in, in, in sport injuries, that kind of stuff. We, we get to a point where we put, you know, through the sport, whether it's getting hit by another player or you know, getting in a wrong position or something, you put enough stress on the connective tissue that it gets to the point of failure and it can't hold on and the only thing left to do is for it to tear. So you're going to be working on some of these things and uh, some of us together to some degree, but we have to think about um, how do we feel these. So again, it comes with time and practice, but you, you, it's about that feel of resistance that you get as you're placing the stress on. So... Tissue deformation, because I've talked about it there a couple of times. The amount of time and the rate at which stress is applied affects the behavior of the tissue. So there's a couple of things that happen when I place this stress on. The first thing I get is something called creep. Okay, How many people here in yoga, I'm sure a number of you take yoga, you get in and that initial stretch is a bit uncomfortable, you stay with it, and through breathing, all of a sudden it gives, it just melts right that's creep okay so when the load is applied for an extended period of time the tissue elongates and does not return to its original length so that's why after yoga when you get that that creeping occurring you feel much your, your, your muscles feel much longer after after that kind of stuff this change is related to the viscosity of the tissue and is therefore time dependent the amount of deformation depends on the amount of force and the rate at which the force is applied, right? So uh, when, we, when we look at uh, how much force do we apply, it's about feedback both from the patient and from the tissue itself, and how long we hold it for. Low magnitude loads in the elastic range and applied for long periods increases the deformation of connective tissue and allows gradual rearrangement of collagen fiber bonds and redistribution of water. So if I go back, the elastic range here, right? So I, I've got some stretch into this tissue now. I am getting some deformation. I am getting the collagen fibers rearranging and redistribution of water, which results in a deformation that stays, stays longer than it did in the first place. We get increased 
if we have increased temperature, so this is why hot yoga works really well, you're in a hotter environment, you get more creep. Anybody here do hot yoga? I've never done it before. But here it's, uh, I do do yoga, believe it or not. Really badly, but I do it. What's that? You can't be bad at yoga? Okay. Um, so that's, uh, this is why a lot of people like this hot yoga, because you seem to get more of a reaction in a hotter environment. I can see that because you're feeling good, right? It feels like you're really stretching out. How long do we do it for? It dictates the time. But ultimately, the one thing you all need to realize is you need to be patient. Right? That, that's the key. You need to be patient. It takes time in this stretch to get this creep to occur. Right? Um, you, I've, I've had times where I might be stretching a muscle and in a patient along with the connective tissue for up to five minutes as we work our way through. The other thing that happens with this deformation, there is a neurological response when I put this kind of stretch on tissue, and it's something that is a normal reflex that happens. So when a force is applied to stretch tissue and the length is kept constant after the initial creep, there is a decrease in the force required to maintain that length and the tension in the tissue decreases. So it's actually a neurological response as you hold that, that, uh, that muscle out into length and you suddenly get, it kind of goes, okay? Because the Golgi tendon organ is starting to send a message to have the muscle relax. So how much load do I place on a muscle to make it go longer on tissue? Stretching should be applied at a low intensity by means of a low load. What do I mean by that? Mm -hmm. Okay. Right. Okay, good. So it's, you know, you're not, you're not being aggressive with the movement and your load is very light and what you need to get working on over time is um sort of closing your eyes and getting a sense of oh there it goes you ever hear your therapist say that to you you're there and they're like you know you feel the stretch and they're like oh there it goes right around the time you're going hey there's no pain all of a sudden yes you ever notice that so that takes a little, little bit of time to get that feel but you'll you'll feel that resistance and all of a sudden you can move through it. Uh, more comfortable for the patient and minimizes voluntary or involuntary muscle guarding. It also, uh, this intensity going at uh, low intensity and low load elongates the connective tissue that surrounds the joint or related to the muscle that you're stretching as well. Okay? How long do we hold it for? What's everybody say? 30 seconds. Everybody agree with that? Do you hold a stretch for 30 seconds? Based on what? Yeah, that's the problem. Based on what? Why do you hold it for eight, for 30 seconds? Nope. There is. Correct. Okay. So we've adopted 30 seconds because it's the MTO has. 
but the research out there is from two seconds to five minutes. Okay, it's really not um, nailed down to any one particular length of time per se. Period of time a stretch force is applied and shortened tissues are held in the lengthened position, which is what we mean by stretch. It can also be how long a single cycle of stretch is applied. If more than one repetition of stretch is carried out during a treatment session, the cumulative time of those cycles adds together to reflect the total time of stretch. So if I do five, five, like okay, one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, four, five, it all culminates to maybe be a 30 or 40 second stretch. Okay? Um, but 30 seconds is kind of the thing. The shorter the duration of a single stretch cycle, the greater number of repetitions applied during a stretching session. So why, why would I maybe have like a five-second stretch for one patient, but a 30-second stretch for another? What will constitute that? What do you mean by that? <clears throat> I want you to start thinking about it. I'm not going to be answering these all the time. You've got to start thinking about this stuff. Why would I give one patient five-second stretches and lots of cycles as compared to someone I might give one or two cycles of a 30-second stretch? When would I do that? But even within one session. So say I'm seeing you for an hour, you for an hour, you for an hour. You guys do 25 five-second stretches and you I do three 30-second stretches. Why? What would What would indicate that that might be something I'd want to do? What kind of situations would I do that in? Well, I'm, I'm trying to stretch. I'm not trying to strengthen yet. Could be, right? Could be that their, their range of motion is so short that um, it's too uncomfortable for them to do extended periods of time, right? So remember, the time of short sets still is cumulative. So whether I give you 330s or I give you 90, 20-ish, 19, whatever it is, five-second things, right? It could be to do maybe she's really old and can't deal with the 30-second hold, right? Um, might be too tiring for her. Maybe she's got Parkinson's. We have to be careful. We don't, we don't, when we do remedial exercise for certain pathologies, we don't want to overtax the patient. It may be too much for them. So, again, all I'm trying to get you to think about is it's not, <clears throat> when we look at exercise prescription, it's not a one-size-fits-all. You really have to be cognizant in looking at what does your patient bring to the table? What are their pathologies? What are the problems at the joint or muscles you're trying to stretch? And it really starts to dictate what approach you should take. The nice thing is about when your cycles are, are accumulating, you're still going to get the same amount of stretch. You're just making it maybe easier on the patient or easier on the tissue of the patient that you're trying to stretch out. All right? But ultimately, CMTO, their standard is static hold 30 seconds, right? That's their, that's our, our caller's telling us the way it works. So static stretching is the most common form of stretching. We have uh, tissues that are elongated past the point of tissue resistance and held in the lengthened position with a sustained stretch force over a period of time. 
as I said, the studies that are in Kisner and Colby, there's a whole bunch of them, say anywhere from five seconds to five minutes. The CMTO has decided that for us it's 30 seconds, which I think is fairly big, the norm in, uh, uh, what's it called? Um, what do you guys take for your training in sports and fitness? Can't fit. Say 30 seconds? Okay, okay. Static progressive stretching. So this is where we stole the static stretch, where we progress it. So short and soft tissues are held in a comfortably lengthened position until a degree of relaxation is felt by the patient or the therapist. The short tissues are then incrementally lengthened even further and again held in the new end range position for an additional period of time. I'm going to show you some examples here in a second. Cyclic is slightly different. Short duration stretch force that is repeatedly but gradually applied, released, and then reapplied. So the first one was I hold it, it releases. I hold it, it releases, I hold it. This is in the stretch, out of stretch. In the stretch, out of stretch. So short duration, repeated but gradually applied. It's applied for multiple repetitions during a single treatment. End range stretch force is applied at a slow velocity in a controlled manner at a relatively low intensity. The research suggests your cycles should only be between five and 10 seconds as compared to the 30 of static. Okay, so if you're deciding you want to do a cyclic type of stretch, it's five to 10 seconds. Some, some research suggests that patients with very tight muscles, they find that this mode of stretching is the most comfortable. How fast? Well, if we're looking at the traditional static, we're looking at slow applied. And the reason we do that is that uh, we're trying to reduce the possibility of injury. So we go too fast, too hard, we get an injury. But do you know, does everybody know what ballistic stretching is? Does anybody know what ballistic stretching is? So if you see patients and they go, they're stretching like this, you don't see it much anymore. That's ballistic stretching, okay? What's interesting is ballistic stretching and static stretching, uh, research-wise, show exactly the same amount of change in length of muscle. The difference is ballistic stretching does damage. And the patient has soreness afterwards. So this is why we've moved away from it in most cases. So the slow applied is what we want. You go in gradually into the stretch force and you stay there for your allotted 30 seconds. Example. Ballistic stretching is rapid, forceful, intermittent stretch. So it's high speed, high intensity, quick bouncing movements that create momentum to carry the body segment through the range of motion. But as I said, the research shows that ballistic and static stretching get the same results, but it causes muscle soreness. So we definitely do not ever do ballistic stretching on someone who's sedentary or elderly. But occasionally, we might have to do ballistic stretching for a patient who is in a sport or something that causes for strong dynamic movements. So we say you're highly trained athletes involved in a sport like gymnastics, which requires dynamic flexibility, may benefit from this type of stretching. So it has got its place from time to time. How often do we do it? Nobody knows. The research is actually very poor on this. We don't know how often to do it. So I'll read you the statement that comes out of Kisner and Colby and you can take it from what you want. The recommended frequency of stretching is based on the underlying cause of impaired mobility, the quality and level of healing tissues, the chronicity and severity of a contracture, as well as the patient's age, use of corticosteroids, and previous response to stretching. I'm not sure what that means. But, again, what it's trying to say is, head in the game, 
pay attention to the patient that you have in front of you and what you're what you're giving them. And obviously, if you have a 90-year-old lady who's in a long-term care facility, are you going to have her stretch like four times a day, five days a week? Probably not, right? So it's, it's what it's trying to say. What's that? No, it's corticosteroids actually breaks down connective tissue if you're on it for long periods of time. You know how you see some of the old, some elderly folks in the hospital and their skin almost looks like transparent and as thin as tissue paper? Good chance those individuals have been on prednisone, which is a corticosteroid for a long period of time, and the connective tissue components of the skin is broken down to the point where it can tear with just the slightest movement. So yeah, uh, corticosteroids, one has to be careful because it does break down connective tissue over time. But as I said, research evidence is poor as to the optimal frequency to increase flexibility. Now, we do recommend pre and post exercise, right, to prepare for anti injury. You had a question? Yeah, just kind of a <coughs> thought. Why does CMCO adopt a uh, 30 second rule when there's so much? Um, Write them a letter, you ask them. I've, I've asked them many times. Like, why don't they leave it up to right. the training therapist? When I turn this off, I'll have a conversation with you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's the same as the sensitive practice stuff. You guys are all taking all that, right? Yeah. You guys have taken sensitive practice? What sensitive tissue? Breast. Come on. Everybody else, what sensitive tissue? Breast, inner thigh, gluteal. I think it's all wrong. Do you know what my answer is? Sensitive tissue is whatever your patient tells you is their sensitive tissue. Because if you've got someone who's got a history of sexual abuse or, or child abuse or survivor of some kind, it could be their neck, it could be their, their arm, their leg, their face, right? Um, and they don't care about their breast tissue or their glutes. Like it drove me nuts because pretty much every person I massage, I do glute massage, especially for low back problems, piriformis, glutes, right? Um, and, and I don't disagree that there needs to be a process to identify with your patient as to what's sensitive and what isn't to make sure there's no surprises but to actually say that this is sensitive, like, there's no abs. So, okay, I can do an abdominal massage, and that's not considered sensitive, but I can shove an elbow in your butt, and that's, ooh, we got to be careful. I don't, I don't get it. I actually get it. Okay. Uh, I'm going to pause this for a sec. Oh, I don't want that. Sorry. <laughs>